Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, my faithful co-host, Dil Stenberg, and I are going to pick up a conversation we started last evening, an unrecorded conversation, and uh, finish this conversation uh, live, recorded. <laughs> we were talking about, uh, you know, this motif of certainty that's thrown uh, 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 about a lot in the modern world and discussed in both positive and negative ways as a boogeyman or as a thing to be achieved. And so I'll just kind of pass it off to Dale here to say a couple things, and then we'll just get this going. So I think both of us are interested in exploring the phenomenon of um, the uh, the level of certainty in the modern age. And there's a bunch of contributing factors to that, and we're not going to be able to put our finger on all of them. But some of the more sort of obvious examples of that are online interaction. Um, not all the time, but I think that the internet has really given a platform to people to be able to express their opinions well, to digest the opinions of others, sort of internalize it to, to like fit in a, a, a certain sociological group and then assert the claims that they've passively adopted as their own claims. And they seem to do it so earnestly as if they put the work in to like come to this conclusion that this thing I believe, whether it be Calvinism, Arminianism, whether it be mm. presuppositional apologetics or Thomistic metaphysics or whatever, pick the uh, topic du jour that that you know people are discussing in in circles, politics. I mean, the options are endless. And you see people sort of like earnestly contend for this thing they say they believe. And it's obvious, like the moment you begin pressing on any one of their claims, that they haven't put the intellectual sweat into like hashing out all the steps that are necessary to get to the conclusion. And that this is dangerous for like cultivating genuine discourse. Yes. And I think that that creates a, interestingly, I think that that creates a sort of foil or it becomes a foil, that kind of search for certainty where what you've really done is memorized a sort of series of talking points or whatnot, that, that becomes a foil for this, this interesting other phenomenon I think we see that's attractive to kind of, you know, millennials and such as sort of the critique of certainty, where, where all of a sudden it becomes kind of uh, 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 like the problem with everything is Descartes and certainty and Cartesianism or whatever. And the real problem is, is that we thought we could the enlightenment project be certain in the first place. And the real thing is actually this uncertain doubt is a virtue kind of headspace. And, and, and it can be, it's a, like it, in as much as it's a critique of certain things, it can be very insightful, but very often that rhetorical pitch where every the certainty is the problem to which you know this other kind of nebulous oblong blur is the solution. Um, it can wind up being its own version of kind of unprincipled, and it it almost is sort of just a, a mix of cool kids and Hallmarky vibe at the end of the day. Um, and I think I think rather the the more confusing situation that we're in is that we actually do desire some kind of certainty. Like, and I don't think we should lie about that. Uh, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be the case that we don't want to know. Uh, you know, scripture talks about this and it's just written in the whole fabric of, of human historical consciousness that, you know, 
Aristotle, all men by nature desire to know. You know, my people perish for lack of knowledge. We want to know, we want to have foundations, we want to have realities and things that we can count on in a certain kind of way. Uh, and yet, that's, that, that desire, that kind of space inside of yourself is juxtaposed to something in you that does not know, uh, that in fact does not have possession of the world in the way that you actually do desire to have possession of the world. Uh, and, and most of what we get in this life, even though may, maybe we could speak about certain kinds of epistemic certainty or something that on certain cases or with certain people approximates that, most of what you get in this life is just good enough. Yeah, <laughs> and God's right. designed it that way in part, but it's good enough. And I think there's also a register on which you develop a certainty at the get-go, which is just faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And the object of faith is a divine person. And so yeah. there's a level of certainty that transcends mere calculus anytime there's a person-person relationship. What it means to be certain in a person is a different kind of thing than merely kind of the output of an algorithmic input. Um, and so there's that. Um, nevertheless, both kinds are desirable. We want certainty in a person, uh, but we also do want a kind of epistemic and metaphysical certainty, which, which, we, can, which we can approximate through, through wisdom. Um, and yet you can't just seize that. That's really the thing here. And I think part yes. of what you're talking about is you, there's a, there's a, there's, glory comes after the cross you can't seize the, the the mantle of prophetic certainty without the pilgrimage that it takes to get there and if you do that if that actually is your project then you're revealing yourself in some way to have a, a, a somewhat pathological relationship to the content of your faith itself. And I think this is such a key thing in modernity that a spiritual sin that can slip in unawares that we have to point to very precisely. And that is to say that we can believe all the right things, but we can have a pathological relationship to the beliefs themselves. How is this set of beliefs, which might be the beautiful truth of the beautiful truth of Christianity, even? But how is that set of beliefs functioning for me on this other register? Is it the solution to this kind of problem that it's actually not the solution to in that directive away, even if their solution is attainable through, uh, through, through pilgrimage? And so I think, you know, again, this is really just another way of talking about the temptation of ideology. It's what you're talking about online. You sort of seize this thing um, and it becomes the site within which I actually establish yeah. kind of my my pedigree of certainty uh, because I need that for some reason rather than saying the truth, which is, yeah. hey, you're not that certain about most things. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're really not like you actually really. And I, I say this sometimes to, to people and, and in some ways I think it's a very liberating thing to know. Really, really you don't know that much. Like you yeah. actually don't have the right to have it, to consider yourself having a truly informed opinion about most things. And knowing that is actually very liberating because we like our, the boomer parents and the millennial children are, are, are learning that the children have learned something from the parent in some way. And the idea is that you're supposed to have an opinion about everything. And yeah. actually you're not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, you notice this, like I've noticed this with watching young men. Um, so when you get a bunch of young men around and there's one sort of 
you know, alpha figure that has the uh, just, uh, you know, respect and attention of the group immediately because of his gravitas or whatever. Like he just is the presence that most other all the other boys sort of look up to. And he begins to talk about something. You'll notice that the other young men scramble to try to contribute to the conversation in a positive way that reinforces whatever he likes. Like if he if there's an interest and then this boy over here shows an interest and this boy over here shows an interest, then the rest of the group, they all try to contribute whatever they may know, even if they know just a very little about whatever that is, say it's a video game or a book or a comic book or whatever it is, it does a sport or whatever. Everybody scrambles to be part of the conversation. And when we grow up, we don't really lose that. And I think what a lot of the sociologists today talk about, they use the word like social contagion to explain the phenomenon of like explosions of ideology in certain uh, pocket regions of the country, uh, whether that apply to the LGBTQ phenomenon or even some of these social movements like uh, Black Lives Matter or even, um, you know, on the right, you've got the Proud Boys and, uh, and uh, QAnon. I think that really what people are interested in is something very natural to humans, which is community. And I think one of the ways that people try to fit into their community is by, is by agreeing with the likes of their community that they desire. Uh, so I think a lot of this is shaped by the fact that um, we're all trying to sort of have friends and we're all trying to have a community. And we know that communities are formed when you agree with the, the larger sentiments of the community. Right. Um, I even find myself doing this. I remember when I was, you know, young cage stage Calvinist and I was all over the place. And what did I know about Calvinism? Nothing. You know, I knew nothing about Calvinism. But if I was on Facebook, you better believe I was the expert on Calvinism. And if you didn't believe with me, I'm pounding you with all the regurgitated things. So I know we're just sort of explaining the phenomenon. Um, one thing I want to say is, and I obviously haven't mastered this yet, but I think a general approach towards getting away from a, like you were saying, sort of a pathological relationship to truth. Uh, even if you have this proper set of beliefs, you can nevertheless uh, have a relationship with those set of beliefs in a pathological way, which is ugly and dirty, and we don't want to be those humans. So you take whatever you think is true, whatever you believe, you feel a certain level of certainty that this thing is the correct thing to believe and you hold it because we all have to operate in the world. You can't be sort of paralyzed by your analysis of everything. Right. And right. I, in other words, you can't say to yourself, I'm only going to be certain after I've exhausted all of the material right. surrounding well, this, this is thing. just the role of tradition, right? It says yeah. Tradition is not an intrinsic authority that, that sort of has like, you know, divine weight in itself, but really what, what the a deference to tradition does, even though you have to be open to the, the new and to what needs to be reformed, there's a reform impulse as well. But, but if, if I'm married to a, a certain kind of deference to tradition that's much deeper than modern people think it should be, and that's very crucial, uh, uh, that deference to tradition, uh, what you have is 
the 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 result where you have to achieve an entire galaxy of wisdom presumably within a single life and yeah. the thing is is like the existence is complicated reality is complicated the world is complicated the human situation is complicated and the tradition as it turns out by the collection of billions of lives thinking about this and organizing thoughts about this and talking and interacting with one another about this has created some fairly helpful ways for you to think about this. And if you have this attitude where that's just so dismissible, um, it's not just that you have to reinvent the wheel. It's actually the more scary idea that you might just, you know, not invent, you might actually just invent something worse. Yeah. <laughs> because you're not that smart. You're not that wise. Like, and it's yeah. fairly hubristic to think that you are, especially at, at that level. And to kind of circle back to the other thing you were saying, uh, yes, this becomes a particular temptation in an era. I was just talking with Alistair Roberts uh, earlier today, and I was making this making this point on an, another podcast that uh, we live in an era, I think, of mobility. Like we, we especially in America, where the, which has a history that's so defined by the frontier, by the experience of the frontier. The, avail the general availability of land and also the invention of the automobile. You live in a culture that's very defined by uh, profound mobility, families all over the place, this sort of thing. And so the organic communal connections, going back to your theme about home, the organic communal connections are largely something in most American places that actually have to be chosen. You know, so if you live in Dallas, the suburbs, you live in Florida. It, right. For the most part, you choose the church you go to that's within driving distance. And so you bond with people who are not connected with you in all these other thick overlapping ways. You bond over ideas. Well, why do you go to the Presbyterian church? Well, that's the one you kind of agree with the most. And your other social bonds wind up functioning in this kind of common interest or common intellectual project level as well, whether it be Facebook or, or anything like this. Um, uh, and so you, 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 we signed of the, the tendency is not just to be ideological ourselves. It's not just to, to, to kind of internalize the talking points and become kind of walking, walking, you know, talk, you know, you know, thought projects or something like that. The other tendency, and it's equally as dangerous, uh, is that we tend to reduce other human beings to their ideologies. And so we're, we, they, they, we experience them in some ways through those connections and you actually lose the textures that make a whole life within which an ideology is actually uh, not even the most significant thing about most individuals. Yeah. And in modernity, we don't just lose that connection to home. You don't just lose that, in losing that connection to place. And this is a very, this is what the conservatives I think really have correct. And uh, I think, you know, the left nascently knows actually but needs to make more explicit, which is one of the, the big challenges of modernity is the evaporation of place and the, and, and the, and the cultural fallout from uh, uh, the evaporation of any notion of place. Uh, and I think that doesn't just alienate you from these thicker human connections that create a home. It also alienates you from a deeper sense of belonging to history, to a historical project and all those sorts of things. And I think we, we could evaluate things like the progressivist movement and even the this is ironically the right right wing movements as seizures. You might look at them as kind of seizures of that kind of deeply human itch 
but in the version of parody. In other words, progressivism really doesn't connect you organically and meaningfully to history, but it sells itself that way. And the right kind of the right cultural project sells itself that way, whereas history ultimately is mostly accessible. You mostly find yourself sort of in the in the uh, 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 you know the electric charge of the events of time, as it were, when you're just living a meaningful existence in a place, yeah, in the body around people. That's 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 kind of ground zero of developing that kind of meaning. Yeah, I think that's right, and that's a good point because um, your, your point to mobility, you know, before we had uh, sort of mass transit, trains, boats planes, cars, even a horse or a buggy. Um, well, before we had the ability to like drive, get get a far distance in a relatively short amount of time, you just had to deal with people as they were in your community. Yeah. Yeah. Like you had to rely on Mr. Smith giving you some eggs and you gave him some milk. And like, he might be yeah. the, a person that you just can't stand, yes. but you have to deal with him as a whole person. Yeah. Um, and now, like you were saying, we get to, we get to, because we're good capitalists in America, we get yeah. so many choices, uh, that we can sort of tailor make our circle and tailor make our, our, uh, our communities. And that's why I think it's more important in the modern age than ever to sort of, um, make sure you're intentionally moving towards that thing over there that you consider just fundamentally 180 degrees wrong. It's just the total opposite of everything that you stand yeah. for as a human being and pick them up and read them or listen to them and say, where, where is truth in here? Like, and where could they help me sort of refine the way that I'm thinking about this thing that I'm holding on very passionately. And I think the only way that you can actually make that move is if you do hold your convictions, like we were saying, you should hold them in, in the palm of your hand, but don't white knuckle it. Because if you, if you, if you like sort of hunker down on all of your convictions across the board and you're not able to receive any nuggets of wisdom or truth from those that you consider right. on the opposite side of whatever your conviction is, then you're really depriving yourself of what it means to grow as a whole person in wisdom. Yeah. And this is exactly what we see in the New Testament. I mean, you've got, imagine if the disciples would have looked at Jesus when he is talking to Zacchaeus and, and say, oh, no, 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 Th that's the wrong person. Like he's been exploiting his own people. He's a tax collector. He's the worst of the worst. Don't listen to anything he has to say. He's not earnest when he says he wants to have dinner with you. He's a conniving sort of low life yeah. loser. Like what Jesus shows us is that he came for all the losers and all the losers have something that just via them being made in the image of God, all have, they're all grasping for something that's true in some capacity. Yeah. And I think, and by the way, let me just qualify this by saying what I'm not saying is that we can all become sort of dispassionate uh, observers of the time stuck somewhere in the middle. And, uh, you know, that is what you should be. I think right. what, we're, what we are saying is that there are principles, basic principles that flow out of a virtuous person that really honestly looks at the looks at um, 
any pushback that they might receive on their deepest held convictions with some level of sympathy. And to really do the self-reflective thing where it's like, could I be not interpreting things properly? Let me investigate this a little bit more. And the problem there is like, we have so many things to investigate, uh, which is what yeah. your point is. Yeah, and this is where this is related to, I think, uh, you know, a big question in, in, a, in a civilization like ours, where you're where you're around people that believe all sorts of different things, working on different kinds of political or social or civilizational projects. Um, you know, there are such things as ideological enemies, like you're after a different thing than I'm after, and they do contradict. Let's just be honest about that. But when do you, I think one of the things we we need to kind of think through in a principled way is when do you write somebody off in the engagement yeah. with them? And, uh, and I think like that's kind of where people go. People say like, okay, give the judgment of charity, blah, 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 blah. But I hear a lot of, I've seen so many people say, well, yeah, but when, you know, when do you just like, when do you decide that somebody's not worth it? You know, that kind of thing. And what my response to that I, I'm developing is always at this point, uh, I'm sure there's an answer to that question, but I also suspect that we are the worst people in the history of the human earth to think that we are the guys whose instincts are the right answer to that question. We are the most relationally, our ability to avoid people. Like we, we it's not that we re, were tried to be born into this context. It's that you just have been born into a world where yeah. truly your capacity to avoid dealing with difficult people has been turned up to an 11 and you have never known a day that was different than that for the most part in a large structural societal way. And if that's true, then you're not probably, like your instincts about that are probably the thing that you should trust the least. Um, yeah. And this is where I think those stories about, I've mentioned them several times, about people like Daryl Davis are so interesting because here's a guy where it's like, you know, clearly this is a guy pursuing people whom he should write off. And yet precisely by not doing that, he had some, he, you know, through God's grace, had some success. Uh, with that. And then um, just to piggyback on, a, on another thing you were saying just a second ago, Dale, it, you know, exactly the point in saying all of this is not just to say, hey, we're people of the times. Well, so okay, Sarah, Sarah, things are confusing. Let's move on. Uh, it's rather to say uh, it's just honest. It's just truthful. We're not stopping with being people in the times. This isn't being a, a person of your own era is not uh, one with maturity but it is something you need to observe about yourself and to see how it's true and how its tendencies and temptations are going to work on you. And so like one, one example of this is like, you know, you think of something like pornography, uh, you know, where the, the principle of being called the sexual purity is the same since time out of mind. The, the, the deep natural law principles of sexual purity are the, are the same as they've ever been really. Right. Um, what pornography does and the internet does not, it doesn't change our moral obligations, but it, but it does change, if you could put it this way, sort of the temptation algorithm. What it's going to take living in this world to be yeah. sexual here is a whole extra layer of fight because it's so easy, it's so accessible. And all we're really saying right now, I think, is we're, 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 we're highlighting and pointing to the epistemic correlate of that same principle. If you're thrown into a world where there are a billion things you're aware of that you might have an opinion about, there's a billion things everyone around you is screaming about and sub points within sub points. 
and you're just one person and you're trying to piece together reality as best you can and as best you know, you're going to likely, like the tendency, it's not going to be surprising if you've got a pile of doubts, you feel a little confused, and you need some help sort of putting it all together. And what and, and where the and it's not and be precisely because that's the temptation, precisely yeah. because that's the condition you live in ideology is going to feel very tempting. It's going to feel very tempting because it comes in and it solves that problem sort of structurally without pilgrimage. But yeah. the pilgrimage is the thing itself. We have perhaps been placed in a condition where it takes just with lust, as with lust, a deeper pilgrimage to self-possess the faith in some way. But, you know, C.S. Lewis yeah. civilization of sages, man, maybe that's the point. Maybe yes. that's a good thing in a certain way. And maybe the yes. civilizational output of all of that are, will be things we don't expect. You know, we can yeah. be speculative, but whatever. Yeah, you know, I, I uh, got into a similar conversation of the phenomenon that you're talking about. I actually use this a lot. Like when I get into conversations with people and we're, we're having a good dialogue and they say something like, well, I'll give you just a real life example. I had this conversation this weekend. We were talking about... Um, sort of the the uh the checklist of christian disciplines like reading the bible praying fellowshipping with the saints making the lord's day a priority and uh this person was was saying well you know we're justified by faith and that frees us from the burden of having to check off all the things that we're making sure we're doing according to the law and I said, yeah, but is that really the problem with modern modern men today? Is the problem really that we're making too many lists to check off? Is it really the over the overall problem in society that we're too disciplined in our spiritual walk? Or is it the opposite? Is it that in the modern age, we don't have to do anything really? Because any infringement on our time and, and, yeah. and that calls us to responsibility, we can weasel out somewhere. Like instead of picking my Bible up, I can flip open Facebook or I can go on Twitter or I can get on YouTube or whatever. Like the, the, so I'm, I'm using your principle and just sort of applying it all the way down. It's like I typically look for the thing that is the general pattern of where, what, I, what I'm living in in the moment. And if somebody is like saying, do I really have to like be intentional because here's this other thing over here. Uh, well, it's like, well, is the other thing a real prevalent problem? If it is, then yeah, you got a legitimate point. If it's not, then it almost is like we make excuses. So yeah, I say that to, I say that to say this, it's like, I think that when we're evaluating this idea of certainty, um, you could get somebody that pushes back and says, and says, well, it's actually harder than ever to be certain about the Christian faith. And my, my thing is like, well, are you, is your level of certainty in general a problem? And if it's not, then perhaps you need to like move right. in the direction of pulling back some of your real dogmatic claims about every position that you hold on everything right and and be open to like affirm right. someone it doesn't even matter if you hate like you you brought up uh oh what's his name the uh kkk converter oh uh, 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 uh daryl davis daryl davis right 
imagine the amount of self-discipline this man he's looking at somebody who hates him that wants him dead and he's probably affirming where they're right on some of the things they think imagine if we had a host of conversation partners that were a regular part of our our, our uh, dialogue diet to where everyone was moving in good faith towards everyone else ready to affirm them when they make a gesture towards something that is good true and beautiful and where the differences lie there's a humble sort of interaction back and forth and it really is a sort of dialectic it's like a socratic move towards a synthesis to where you'll have to give up some things and and then because you're asking them to give up some things. Yeah. And this is really like rooted in what Jesus said, like treat yeah. people the way you want to be treated. If you're talking to the purple haired uh, feminist um, that's at an abortion, uh, a shout your abortion rally, do you want her not to be like that anymore? Yes, I do. Okay. Are you going to tell her reasons why she shouldn't be like that anymore? Yes, I'm, I am. Okay, do you want her to listen to those reasons with genuine interest and, and humility? Yes, I do. Okay, are you doing that? You know, like, are you, are you treat, are you, you are, the like, are you, are you treating people the way that you really want to be treated? I think that this yeah. is a big, big piece. It is remarkable. It is remarkable how almost because it's such an off-quoted verse, you know, treat others, do unto others as one of them doing to you. But it really is almost always a way of getting at the thing itself. It's quite fascinating how uh, how relevant that is even in kind of subtle Christian strategies and whatever. Yes. Um, I think you make a really good point and, and it, uh, you know, it brings me, it makes me want to kind of, uh, correct isn't the, but what qualified something I was saying earlier. I, I do think there's, there are unique challenges to kind of Christian self-possession in the modern period, such that it's it's not surprising that people are going to have more doubts than maybe have been traditional or something like that. But I also don't want to say that it's like it's no, it's no harder to actually be a Christian. It's never you know to actually be a Christian is always just as hard as it is, and it's as it's as and it's also as joyful as it is. You know, because our faith is one that 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 animates and illuminates all human circumstances and all historical periods in its own way and dialogues with those historical circumstances and periods and cultures and civilizations, not just in our own lives, but throughout time, very specifically, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's the word of God. And so we should expect that level of kind of multiple shocking level of kind, kind of, kind of, you know, you know, application. Yes. Um, um, and so when I say that it's hard, I, 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 what's, what's interesting is there's a way in which there's a way in which come, what you did, and I think it was a good move, is sort of say like, okay, it's hard for you to believe the things about the faith. What do you think about everything else? Because I think what actually does happen with a lot of people is the reason it's hard for them to come to uh, more solidity about some of the claims of the faith is precisely linked to the fact that it's hard for them to come to solidity about most things. Because it's the whole system that's confusing. Gender's confusing. All of it's confusing. It's this... Uh, you know, modernity, and there's a whole host of reasons for this. I'm teaching a course on this now, on, on, on interpreting modernity. Uh, and one thing I, I, I've tried to, to, we're trying to talk about in there is, is how modernity is the, one might look at modernity as like the thorough and comprehensive global renegotiation of human custom. 
Yeah. When you think about modernity at that level, all of it's up in the air. Liquid modernity, all that a solid melts into air, that kind of thing. And there's still natural law. There's still the basic embodiment, but, but we're thrown into a, a, a world of interpretation and discourse, nevertheless, that is just very intense. Nevertheless, it's actually not impossible to gain clarity within that. One of the ways I think you do wind up gaining clarity, in fact, is just again to admit that you're confused. In other words, so for me, I'll just, I can just speak personally here. Like I've always had a, a, a difficulty relating to items in the faith and being doubtful and this, that, and the other. But it's actually been in some ways uh, very clarifying and healing and helpful just to get into the headspace where I can say, okay, I just, don't feel certain about this list of things. Just admitting that then puts the things over there. You're calm about it. I'm not going to explode if I can't figure the things out. Right. Dear Jesus, help me get clarity about the things. And then you just go find the information you can about the things and you make a judgment. It's a judgment that is not absolute or divine, but it's a judgment nonetheless that comes from a, a you know, not this anxious, like I need to have this clarity. It sure. comes from a, 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 you know, it can come from a heart that's more rested in God, uh, that's rested in like, what else am I going to do? I am confused. Uh, or, or just being able to say, you know, I only really do know the things that I know. There's a bunch of things I don't know. And so there's a bunch of the time, for instance, where it's very wise of me to say, you know what, here's what the collection of my father says about this. And my bet is that this is at least to be, this is it, this is either true or, uh, or it's part of the truth, you know, yeah. uh, and that doesn't mean there's no distortion in there, but there's something here that I need to reckon with. And that's, that's just, that's just assuming like, uh, you know, I, I don't know everything and maybe they knew a couple of things, Sure. Um, but it's, uh, but all I was trying to, to, to get at there is what's interesting, I think, is when you do take that posture, what winds up happening in some ways is it becomes easier to believe because then you're actually in the position of humility and you say, you know, like, what do I know about how reality works? And then right. you read Lewis miracles and you start thinking about miracles and metaphysics and all that kind of stuff. And you realize, you know, actually it's, it, it's shocking. In fact, especially if you're struggling with something like materialism or atheism, it's shocking. Once you get outside of that kind of angsty headspace and you just try to interpret reality as just kind of armchair objective as you can, uh, just how unsatisfying <laughs> a yeah. lot of theories out there really are just on a glance. There's a lot of things I think, I think you know you're in the right place in fact, in some ways, when there's certain things you don't feel the need to spend a whole lot of time thinking about. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. you can take a pile of things for granted and move on. Uh, yes. even, though, even though you remain sort of in principle, open to any human face, and this is kind of a policy for me, I think Lewis tried to cultivate this, if, if a human face is looking at you and speaking, an image of God is looking at you and speaking with a deep, profound, mystical relationship to the Logos, and when a human face utters words to you, there needs to be a piece of you that habitually and reactively has the posture of, maybe God would say something to me through this person. Yes. I think that's crucial for us. Yes, I do too. And I think one of the ways that you can like begin to cultivate this just in a real practical way. And you, earlier you said, we're the, uh, 
we're probably the worst generation of people to, to, to <laughs> sort of make. The, and I agree with that because here's a piece of why I think that's true. If we begin in our home with the people that God has given to us, our wife, our children, our friends, our mom, our dad, our brother, our sister, our cousins, whatever. If you begin like with the closest humans to you in terms of relational proximity, and you begin to like develop a, a pattern of paying attention to them and listening to them and really trying to uh, think through what our dynamic is in the home, how we relate to one another, where are the boundaries of authority and submission, what is the relationship between serving and leading, when you like just figure out the home, which is like a little community, it's a yeah. little, it's the little smallest form of little civilization then you can move out from there into broader spheres. But here's why I think that we're the worst generation in, uh, that has ever lived uh, to like make these judgments because just existing in the home is so much more difficult in the modern age. And part of it is because I have this thing on my in my pocket all day and I'm talking on the computer and I've got, you know, MSNBC up behind me and I'm listening to the 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 politicians screaming at each other on Twitter and I'm anxious about what the local school board's doing my governor is doing things over here that's going to impact like so our we're pulled apart to where yeah. even focusing on the home becomes it gets put on the back burner so the primary means that you can cultivate this sort of posture towards relationships and certainty and learning how to listen and really being humble, that's evaporated for the most part. And so yeah. now we have to like artificially construct um, a, 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 an edifice of relationships that is going to that is going to aid us in it coming back into the home. So you look for mentors, you look for leaders, we look at tradition, and that should like swing us, propel us back to something a little bit less modern, so that way we can be better modern people. It really yeah. is like the irony there is is rich. So. In, a, in a way, it's, it's, it's just to be a, a modern adult. This is really the goal is to be a modern person who is nevertheless a moral adult within it. And it's interesting you mentioned the home because you're right. There's all these pressures against it. And yet it is the one site that you can't fully disembody, or at least it's very hard to fully disembody. You're actually still there with human bodies around you. Yes. You're actually still a little community. And this is the way in which all of the principles especially apply because the ground zero kind of human community that is the historical norm is still how most people live, even though various of its sites have progressively evaporated or been restructured, at the end of the day, man, woman, you come together, kids happen, and then you have this little civilization. That's that's still what happens because it's the only way for people to get here. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, it's like it's you know, it's so so it's in a way it's it, it's it's the corrective. It, so it's not it's not even just that we need to do all these things to make home life better. It's actually that home also is kind of the ground zero site. And I think it's part of what you're saying is home is also sort of the ground zero site where you're shoving back the other direction. And I think that that includes, well, you know, you think about, again, no, the notion of place. 
it's true. It's very difficult to have the kind of relationship to overlapping networks of trust, embodied place that has been historically normative. And what you just said is very Anthony Giddens in his book, um, uh, The Consequences of Modernity. He This is part of what he discusses is the nature of human trust has shifted in modernity. I think I've said this on the podcast before, but the nature of human trust has shifted because the the kinds of entities that I'm directly engaged with, the systems I'm aware of, and the systems I trust to sort of order my world are all very far away. So yeah. you're talking about Twitter, uh, politics in DC, you got all this stuff, none of it's right here, but it's part of my mental social world. And it's also part of like, which team do I trust? Do I trust this politician or that politician? Whereas historically trust has been much more a very organic overlapping yeah. set of bodies affair. And even though that structure has shifted, it's not impossible to cultivate embodied trust in the modern world. And yep. this is actually one of the one of the unique and interesting things, I think, in God's providence about the local church. Something that's interesting in the local church, even though it can become a kind of ideological enclave, it also doesn't have to be that. And there are a lot of churches that do actually a very good job of fostering a deep sense of local connection of embodied of embodied interaction um, and capture something of the communal dynamic that I think would have been more ordinary historically. And in fact, I think it's one of the things that draws people to the church as a kind of refuge, yes. as a refuge. They're like refugees of homelessness, of existential yeah. homelessness. And yet look at those people, they love each other. And if something goes wrong, they have one another's back. And this is, you know, just Jesus, you know, see them. And they take care of other people. <laughs> it's yes, kind of yes, an early. Yes. So, uh, uh, yeah, there's, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. 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 And, um, you know, just to, as we're sort of winding down here. Um, so here's one thing that's really helped me. Um, I have, I've talked about my son a bunch on the podcast. I've got a almost, he'll be 14 in two weeks. When him and I sit down on our couch and he is running through all the stuff he's learning, there's something in me that wants to sort of like jump up and like crush the bad things he's saying. Right. And be like, no, bad. Like, don't, we can't go that way. And for some things, because he's never really missing the target. He's just not familiar on how to aim yet, really. Yeah. All right. He's just figuring the world out. 13. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, but one of the things I try to do with him is I really try to affirm where he's thinking correctly. Now, this seems just like common sense. And this is what we, when we look at good teachers, for example, we see good teachers do this to their students. They sort of lean into where they're right and then they help guide them along to where they should be going clean this up, clear this up. Oh, you made some errors here, so on and so forth. But honestly, for a guy like me, who's already like charged and ready to like run out and conquer all the things, what God has had to do with me is like pull me way back and give me the ability to sort of like stop myself from going there from being the guy who's just like, oh, they said a wrong thing. Get the, get the wrong idea. Yeah. You know, like grab your pitchfork. We're all on our way over there. And part of this has been with my parenting. That principle, which is what we're sort of belaboring. I don't want to labor it too much longer, but that principle is what I would love to see more people adopt. 
So if you absolutely hate Tim Keller because he's a Marxist and he's dragging us all into a Marxist <laughs> utopia, like I, it, one of the things that you could do is pick up a book by Tim Keller and read it and read it earnestly, read it with good faith, thinking that as the as as a man that's made in the image of God, he is going and as I mean, you can't deny the man smart. What can he give me? Now, if Tim Keller's not your problem, and let's say Doug Wilson is, then pick up a Doug Wilson book and see if he can give you something. Yep. And that's it's it's less about the information; it's more uh, learning how to control your gag reflex, <laughs> right? Like if this is the thing that makes you gag, then take uh, intentional steps towards firming up that muscle for getting control of that muscle more. And then when you habituate that, it helps in every relationship that you that you encounter and you understand certainty then in a in a uh, more deep and wide yeah. uh, way than just this little narrow agree with me or you're my enemy sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just a healthy way to just live in the world. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, uh, yeah, I'll say one last thing, and I, and I think I think this is this is maybe may helpful. Um, I think it's helpful to say that that when we find ourselves relating to our own ideas or to our ideology or to this kind of a certain kind of idol of a fault, and it's really a false kind of certainty. This this is really the thing to say. At the end of the day, the thing that you're calling certainty isn't actually certainty. Yeah. You're not actually certain. That that's that's I think the yes. thing to really internalize. You're not actually certain. You're pretending to be certain. Yes. And I think there's a piece of you that knows that. And I think part of what we need to do, and 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 in a way, like to say that out loud is actually good news. It's liberating news because what it means is. You don't have to do that. It's not that the thing that you want is wrong. We all, by nature, desire to know. We want the beatific vision. We want to see how all things relate to all things. We want the big, you know, enlightenment head explosion that's in the meme. You know, we, we all right. want this. Um, uh, and yet, there's a very real degree to which you do not possess that currently. There's some things you possess, but you know in part you see through a glass darkly, and you can take stand on principles and all these sorts of things. But uh, to the extent that you relate to the ideas this way, and then treat everybody else as just these kinds of, you know, spectral identity labels and this sort of mm. thing. Actually, what's happening, I think, in some ways is that you, um, there's actually a kind of cynicism there, in a weird sort of way, I think a, um, you might say something in you that is actually atrophied. And it's the same thing on the left. So I think I'll say it on the left and maybe this will help uh, maybe the right right way to say it. So like you could look at the LGBTQIA movement and all sorts of things on the progressivist agenda on the left, like, you know, free love or polyamory or whatever. You could on the one hand see that as just mere hedonism, you know, transhumanism, we get to do whatever we want to our bodies. But what it also is, is the is the death of something that is the death of something that I think the child actually desires. That is to say, there's still something in human beings that wants that one relationship that's fulfilling. Mm -hmm. That is actually just what human beings want. 
And, and, and I think part of what we're trying to do rhetorically is you try to put that in an arrow, and, and it, but it's atrophied, it's numbed. You've sort of yes. drunk yourself with this, this, false, this, this false stuff. And it seems like this is full livingness. And so uh, your, your sense of even like what the good world would look like, what you don't realize is it's already a compromised, infected vision where, you, where you've died to something that would actually be more beautiful than that. And I think what you're trying to do rhetorically and, and hopefully with the power of the spirit in cases is fling an arrow right at the thing that they didn't even, they don't even remember that they, they wanted, which is, yep. Hey, you, you young man over there, get caught up in this, that, and the other movement. I actually think you do care about being a man and, and it matters a lot to you. Um, and I think this is the, so this is sort of going around on the, so, so that on the right is, I think is to say something like, you really do want something that's legitimate. What you're trying to get through attaching to a project in this way is a legitimate thing. It's the longing for home. It's the longing for a connection to a robust intergenerational project. It's the longing for guidance in a very confusing context. It's the longing for a robust knowledge <laughs> and all those sorts of things. But you're actually cheating yourself. And I think yes. this is actually cheating yourself out of the real thing, the yeah. desire of the nations, as it were, uh, by investing in this surrogate, this parody that ultimately winds up just making you be weird and act yeah. weird to people. Right. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is good stuff. Um, and we could talk about it forever. And I hope that at least what people could walk away with is, you know, a, a better understanding of how deeply we're infected with a modern ethos that could be dangerous, not only for our own souls, but for the community at large. Um, so and God well, help us. And God help us. <laughs> Amen. We, we really yes. do. <laughs> yes. So we've got a bunch of uh, good interviews coming up. Um, we've got uh, Flat Earth and Fake Footnotes coming. I can't wait to get into that. Uh, that'll be here soon. Um, but as always, guys, you can find uh, the previous episodes on the Davenant Institute YouTube channel. You can head over to Facebook and find our page and join the conversation in our Facebook group. Um, but until next time, Joe, I love you, brother. Love you, man. And we will see you guys later. <laughs>